Help us to see our Lord and our Savior, Christ Jesus, in new ways. I pray this in the name of Christ. And I pray it for the sake of his kingdom within us and within this world. Amen. We are still um, looking at Christ's revolutionary. As I think on him, one of the things that strikes me is that nothing held him but the will of God. Nothing held him but the will of God. He never lost that sense of focus, and it started, as you all know, when he was 12. And he stayed behind, unbeknownst to his parents, uh, as they were returning to their home from Jerusalem. He stayed behind in the temple to talk deep things over with the leaders and the scribes. And uh, as you know, when they came to get him and they were astonished that he had not gone, uh, uh, his parents were astonished that they, he had not gone with them. He said, do you not know that I must be about my father's business? From that point forward, he carried a revolutionary focus. It never wavered from his father. It never wavered from what his father wanted. All of the distractions that swirled about him never diverted his focus. You know, I often look at the life of Christ and I, there's a part of me that thinks of the simplicity of his life, the, the, the simplified life he lived. And yet when you really look at the context of his life, there was nothing simple about it except his focus. His interior simplicity is what emanates out to me and makes me think he had a simplified life. And the, the simplicity was within him because he had a single, singular focus. But his life was more drawn and pushed and pulled and quartered in the external world than any of us have. You know, we, you, you'll read places in the scripture where people flocked to him such as they did not even have time to eat. There are times when so many people flocked to him that he stayed up all night healing. And then he'd go out to a deserted place to pray afterwards. He didn't take time sometimes to rest before he did that, before he departed out to his, um, his father. So what we look at here is that he carved out in the midst of the chaos of his life a simple path. And it was the path his father carved out. So then you turn to John 4, and it's a scripture that you all know, but it is um, when the disciples have gone into town um, to get something to eat, and uh, they came back, and in verse 31, from having uh, gotten food, and they uh, petitioned him, they prayed him, King James says, uh, to eat. 
He said, Master, eat what we've brought for you. And in verse 32, Jesus said unto them of chapter 4, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Now, it would have been a natural thing for him to have thought in terms of eating something physical, eating physical food. But even in that natural human context, he is thinking of different things. He is thinking, I have meat that's more important than this. His focus was honed and concentrate. And so the disciples in verse 33 said one to another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said unto them, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. So at the very beginning we see of his adult ministry, we see this same, this same focus. We see it expressed over in uh, the next chapter, chapter 5, verse 19. Actually, I'm going to start with um, 17. Uh, Jesus said unto them, My father works here and I work. Therefore the Jews, verse 18, sought the more to kill him because he not, had not only broken the Sabbath but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. And then Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, The Son of Man can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For what things soever he does, those things also does the Son likewise. This is so interesting. I, I just think, you know, a whole series of, of things could come out of this. What he's saying there, it seems to me, is that his father was at work in the world too. And we think of the father being up there. But what is he saying here? He says, my father works here and I work here. That's in verse 17. In the middle of verse 19, what the Son of Man sees the Father do those things the Son of Man does. Where two or more are gathered. <laughs> it seems to me that God the Father and God the Son converged here on earth. And that God in the spirit realm was there in some fashion, the Holy, maybe the Holy Spirit equally God. They're working, representing the Father, drawing the Son to that place of work. And wherever the Father was, the Son converged with him so that the work of heaven was established and accomplished here on earth. I think that's, that's such an out-of-the-box sense about Jesus being here, God the Father being there, and God the Father maybe through the Holy Spirit being out here in the world, summonsing him, saying here, come here. So that 
was his focus. He didn't do anything unless he saw the Father do it. He's not seeing the Father do it in heaven because it has to do with here on earth. I, I, I think we could uh, meditate on that for a long time and still not fully understand what that's about. Except that it is for sure about the focus of Christ and that he didn't do anything unless he saw his Father do it. And his Father is working here, he says in verse 17, and I'm working here. Both. So it gives sort of new understanding and new meaning to where two or more are gathered in my name, there am I with you. Talking about believers, his followers. And even Christ the Son and God the Father converged here on earth together as two, as one. So, the power of Christ came in his focus. It came in his yieldedness and his obedience to what he saw the Father do, to what his Father wanted. Uh, turn on over to uh, chapter 7, verse 16. Um, people are trying to figure him out. Uh, in verse 14, as a lead-in, uh, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and taught, and the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know the letters, having never been taught? Jesus answered him and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. His focus was never on himself. It was never on his doctrine. He, my, my doctrine is not mine, but him that sent me. And this speaks to the humanity of Christ. In, in, in Gethsemane, when he says, nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours, it speaks to the humanity of Christ. It speaks to his individuality and the fact that he had his own will. He had his own ideas. But they were always sublimated and never contrary to, because he submitted whatever he wanted to the Father. He wanted not to go to hell and pay the price of hell for us. I mean, he wanted to, but he didn't. He didn't want to be stripped of all that was good and light and true and go into a place where God was utterly, absolutely absent. But he did that because his Father said, go. So whatever ideas of what he wanted to do as human, he submitted those to what his father wanted him to do. So he tells them there, my doctrine is not mine. It's the doctrine the father has given me. It is his doctrine. So Christ didn't have a separate doctrine, but it was because he didn't even have a, a separate focus. His focus was what his father wanted. So he never went to a separate doctrine. He was here for one purpose. Turn on over to page, I mean to um, chapter 8. Uh, for... 
Yes, we do. I just now got to get that. We do. Because I never understood Jesus went off by himself mm -hmm. to pray. And I thought, okay, why would he do that when it says when two or more gathered, I will be amongst you? And it just now hit me. He and the Father were gathered. Just as we have two or more gathered together. Absolutely. Because in, in, in uh, John 14, it talks about the spirit. Well, turn there. Turn there. You see, uh, God the Son and God the Father gathered together in his name. Two or more gathered together in his name. And in John 14, to pick up on, my, Patty, what you said, in verse 21, I can't even get to, I can't turn the page here for some reason. He that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me, and he that loves me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Then jump down to 23. If a man loves me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him. And make our abode with him. Elsewhere in uh, Corinthians and I think Ephesians, uh, Galatians, I'm sorry. It's, it, you, you get the sense of both. The spirit that cries, Abba, Father, which is the spirit of Christ and the Spirit of God himself. They're both in us in the form of the Holy Spirit. So, yes, in fact, I'm going to be talking a little bit more about that from a different angle on Tuesday night in my conversation on hanging in the balance. Uh, it, it, because that convergence stabilizes everything in our lives. If we have a focus like he had. Now, it's not going to be per as perfect. It's not going to be as pure. But we need to be on the journey of that focus. And we need to be calling away those things uh, that distract us uh, from that focus. Let's finish there in, in um, John 8 um, with uh, one or two other things. 8 verse 28. Looking at this focus of this revolutionary Christ, <clears throat> uh, reading uh, Christ's words in verse 28 of chapter 8, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall you know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father has taught me, I speak these things. He's been taught he didn't come into this with the full programming. He didn't come into this planet with the full knowledge. He has been taught as a man. And he that sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. Now, when he asks you and me to yield and to submit ourselves to him, he is not asking us to do that which he has not already done. When we think, ah, oh, this is so hard to submit myself to purity, 
to submit myself to holiness, to submit myself to the divine. He's not asking us to do anything he has not already done first. He did, he yielded himself to the Father. He looked for the Father and followed him, met him wherever he was. He was taught of the Father. And in that teaching, his focus and his desire are to do what pleases him. Not what might please Jesus. To do things a little differently here. You know, I've often thought, what a tough time for Jesus to come. <laughs> there was no air conditioning. No central heat. Huh? No, no indoor plumbing. Nothing motorized that would make it easier for him to travel from one place to the other. None of the conveniences that we have. What a tough time for someone who had been in perfection, who had known only grandeur and majesty and eternity and endless wealth and endless opulence and endless perfection to be the culture shock of just coming here. It just blows my mind. And then he, then he had to just live in the heat and the elements. And I mean, why didn't he just come later? You know, when it got a little better. <laughs> but we wouldn't have known our needs so desperately as they did then. I think he could not have swept the world with his fire as he did then because we are needless. I believe we are Laodicea. And we don't, we don't know our need, like they knew their need. Well, the church today would be in the process of crucifying him or you know, getting him arrested. It was the church then that did that. We wouldn't recognize him. It, 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 Oh, a good point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. If he had quantum leapt up to here, it, he, we would not know our need for him. But if there had been this absence of two thousand years, we'd probably be a withered, uh, lifeless place. We would have killed. Yeah, that's a good point, Betsy. It is unfathomable not to have had Christianity these last 2,000 years. Ah, uh, very good point. And also, you know, Pardon me? Oh, she's thinking It is mind-boggling. <laughs> Absolutely, back to the future, Kim. <laughs> oh, I love it. 
Uh, so, It was perfect. Yeah, and it was not just the common language, but the Greek language was unique in all of human linguistics, and it's the unique language that was equipped to present the uniqueness of of Christ and God to man. Our language isn't. There isn't any other language. The Greek language is the only one that's been so scripted for the divine. No, 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 no. No, it was in the fullness of time. <laughs> uh, but, you know, you just think, he chose something that was not convenient in any way, shape, or form for him. Huh? No, see, it wasn't about him. Is that what you said? Yeah, and that's, that's my point, is that it is, tends to be about us and whether we're convenienced or inconvenienced what works best for us, and it just wasn't about Jesus. It was about the Father. It was about redemption. It was about saving the world. It was about us. It was about us. Exactly. Exactly. In fact, uh, let's go to a couple of those, um, those scriptures. Turn to Luke 9. And Luke 9 is one that uh, I've hit before. Um, but it speaks, it speaks to this being, in a sense, as Mike said, about us. In uh, verse 55, uh, this is where the disciples have been sent out to prepare the communities for Christ's arrival in their midst. One Samaritan community didn't receive them. The disciples were upset. They had just been empowered as Elijah had been empowered. And so they wanted to use that power to maybe call down fire from heaven, as Elijah had done, to teach them a lesson, to discipline them, to punish, not discipline, punish them. And um, that is their question in verse uh, 54. Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, You know not what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. John 3.17, come not to condemn the world, not to condemn, not to judge, but that the world through me might be saved. I've come, he says in Matthew and Luke elsewhere, to seek and to save the lost. In Luke 4.18, I've come to preach this good news to the poor, to heal those who are brokenhearted, to bring deliverance to those who are in captivity, to set at liberty those bruised places in us. It was, as Mike said, about us. Jesus was not about Jesus. He was about the Father, and he was about us. So he came at a time which would have seemed least appealing and least attractive. 
in the scheme of things for him had it been about him. Thank God Jesus wasn't about him. Thank God the Father that he sent his only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 6, 27, I think I've skipped that and I'm not, I've got that written down and I'm trying to think what that is. As, as a lead in to this from what we just read, he is rebuking his disciples for, having, for rising up from a spiritual underpinning to a soulish view. The disciples immediately went up to a human response. You know, they are not paying one bit of attention. They are not ready for him. And so we, we get into the judgment. We get into the consequence. Shouldn't there be consequence for this? I mean, this is natural human thought processing here. Our tendency is to judge. Our tendency is to, to label. He is eating with the publicans and the sinners. We label. That way we don't have to um, think about the individual. He's eating with the liberals and the Democrats. That way we don't have to think about <laughs> Just to update this. <laughs> yeah, now I've gone to meddling. <laughs> we don't have to think about it. We, we don't have to think about the individuals that he came to, to meet. We just mark them off. We just push them out to the side. They don't matter because they're God's enemies. That's what the disciples were doing here with this community, the Samaritan community that wouldn't receive him. He, they, he, that community became the enemy of Jesus. And Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you are of. I came not to destroy, but to save. So we see this function in various forms all over uh, the scripture, but in um, John 6, 27, he is, he is telling the people, uh, you know, he's just done this uh, feeding of the 5,000, and um, they're, they're seeking for him in verse 25, trying to find him because he's gone to the other side of the, the uh, Sea of Galilee. And they said unto him at the end of verse 25, uh, Rabbi, when did you come here? They're seeking him. And he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the meat which perishes, but for that meat which endures into everlasting life which the Son of Man shall give unto you for him 
uh, has God the Father sealed. Do not labor for that which perishes. Don't get your focus up here on things that don't matter. Things that may seem to matter, like the Samaritan village not being willing to receive him was not the biggest item for Christ. His desire was to save them, not to punish them, not to destroy, not to condemn, not to judge, but to save. And he is telling his followers here, therefore telling you and me, don't get your focus on those things that perish. Those things in our society that perish, and I'm not just talking about the wealth that we have and the things that we have, and that, that yes. But what gets us in a twit? You know, what gets us all in a wad about something? Fair. Pardon me? Something's not fair. It is not fair. Yeah. We are really quizzed on that. We are expert people on that. Because we have certain inalienable rights that need to be defended. I mean, that's how we are programmed. I, of all people, have been programmed that. I have loved this country. And I have loved the Constitution and how it was framed. It is a masterpiece of humanity, of the human effort. It's an absolute masterpiece. It is beyond human fathoming that we could have come up with this. So yes, I have, been, I have been steeped in the inalienable rights. But that leads to it's not fair, it's, to defending, to getting caught up in a wad here that is ultimately, if we are part of the revolution, it is irrelevant to us. Christ said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Which in a sense means that Caesar was irrelevant to what Christ was about. And you think, well, there was an awful lot of stuff going on at the hands of Caesar. A lot of pain and suffering, a lot of terrible things were going on, and yes, there were. Oh, and treachery and, and suffering and torture. Uh, and, and he was one of the better Caesars. <laughs> you go on from there and you get Nero. Caligula. But for the purposes of heaven on earth, even that unless a person's been called, called to get involved in that, those are irrelevant. Because if we've not been called, we'll get involved in that and we'll wind up looking just like the world we're trying to change. Washington, D.C. is a prime example of that today. No one is equipped to serve two masters. And only if one has been called to go into this power broker scene because there are two, uh, politics and religion are two competing masters because they're both about power. And only if somebody has been called to go into that political fracas can they maintain who they are in Christ. I, don't, I couldn't. I would roll up my sleeves and fight it out with the best of them. <laughs> I, I would. 
I'd out-argue them, or I'd sure try. And I might even take a swing every once in a while because some of that stuff is just too much to handle. <laughs> I know I can't go there and remain focused on who I am in Christ and what Christ is about here. Because I would get all broiled, embroiled in the legislation, in, in the rightness and the wrongness, and the idiocy. I would come up with some phrases and terms for those people who don't know what they're doing. <laughs> I would. I think only someone who has been called to go into that cauldron has a hope of being Christ's person truly there and not losing their focus. I think few are called because ultimately he's not about Caesar. He's not about the labels because there are people who are good and decent people who are liberals. They're not evil. They just look different and think differently than the conservative mind does. He's after their soul. That's why he died. He came to seek and to save the lost. He came not to destroy, not to condemn, not to ridicule, not to label, not to get caught in the fracas of Caesar. He came to save. And I, I, I think that we have to bring our focus down and look at no matter how difficult a person may be, how off they may be, Christ is after their soul. And he's only, he can only reach that soul through his people, through his word. And how shall they believe if they do not hear? And how shall they hear if my people are not sent to speak the words so that faith can happen? So that's our focus. And he never lost sight of that. There was so much going on. Who will be on the right hand? Who will be on the left hand? What about marriage in heaven? What about this? You know, the, the lawyers and the scribes and the Pharisees all came at him to entrap him with all of these arguments, all of which were irrelevant because he had come to seek and to save the lost. He had come to heal the brokenhearted. Turn to John 12, verse 47. And if any man hear my words and believes not, I do not judge him. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. And then the unction to us is over in James 4, 11 and 12, that the brother of Jesus understood.
Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaks evil of his brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you that judges another? If I judge, I'm not in obedience. I am not doing the will of him that sent me. I'm being a judge. He didn't send me to be a judge. But he's saying, if I'm judging, then I'm a judge. I'm not doing the law, I'm judging. If we want to obey the law, we must love. The greatest commandment, the greatest law, is that we love one another. That we love the Father, the Lord our God, with all our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. And we love our neighbor as ourselves. If we're judging someone else, we're not, we're not doing the number one law. And yet we're judging somebody else for not doing lesser laws. Makes no sense. And yet we call ourselves righteous. And Christ calls us hypocrites. And that's, a, that's the nicest name he calls us. The worst name is Pharisee. <laughs> and the challenge is for us to not be a hindrance to Christ. Remember when in Matthew, um, I think it was 16, yeah, 21 through 23, um, Christ was telling the disciples that he was going to be crucified. He was going into Jerusalem and, and they would kill him. And Peter said, no, we're not going to let that happen. Now, this was a normal human response. Normal. Understandable. We won't let that happen. And Christ's response to him was pretty harsh, but it's very true because I think it was a temptation to Christ. He said, get thee behind me, Satan. Get thee behind me, Satan. His challenge to you and me is that we live in the spirit and that we walk in the spirit and we come down out of our soulish realm and live in the deep inner caverns of God's relationship with us. The natural human response is to always come out of our soul and have knee-jerk reactions, our soulish responses. Logic and reason prevails there in the soul. It made, it made sense to bring consequence to the Samaritan village that wouldn't receive him. Made sense, humanly speaking, in the soulish response system. Um, it makes sense to get upset with people who are not believing. <laughs> and he's saying, you do not know what spirit you are of. Be in the spirit. Come out of the soulish realm. He is asking you in me to walk as he walked. He's asking you and me to come down and, and live and be and breathe and walk in the spirit and abdicate our soulish perceptions because we are not about what the world is about. We are not about the soul's values. We are not. And it is our soul that has most emphatically been trained up until this point in our life. We've trained it, and it's trained us. But he says, in your patience, possess ye your souls. What is possessing our soul? It is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, 
in the innermost being that seeks to seep up into our soulish realm and possess it so that we might walk as sons of God. So we see then the, uh, in, in Mark 10, the rich young ruler coming to Christ and saying, what must I do to inherit the kingdom, to inherit eternal life? Christ goes over the commandments. And as you know, there was one thing he lacked. He'd observed the commandments. There was an issue of the deepest self. And Christ looked at him and loved him. Loved him with a love, with a look. And he said, there's one thing you lack. Go and sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and come take up your cross and follow me. We have to be looking at the one thing we lack that keeps us from yielding daily to the will of the Father. From seeking to have food that no one else has, the food of God's will. That seeks to surrender. What thing gets in your way? In Luke 10, Mary said at the feet of Jesus, understandably, Martha in her soulish realm. You know, there is a unique kitchen soul. <laughs> and only the kitchen dwellers really know what the rules are of the kitchen. <laughs> One day it may need, be that she needs someone in the kitchen helping her. Another day it may mean that she needs everybody out so she can get the stuff done that she needs to get done. The kitchen keeper dweller person is the one who knows those rules and makes them up on the, on the wing <laughs> as, as need arises. So here is Martha, understandably upset that she is making this meal for all these people, particularly the master. And the only other female in the house is in there with the men, which was taboo at the time. Sitting at the feet as a student being taught by the rabbi. With the men. A no-no. A social faux pas. And Martha is having to do the whole thing. All of that makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> uh, you know, yes, it's the logical, sensible response of a reasonable woman upset and mad. <laughs> Tell Mary, Master, that she needs to come in here and help me. Makes sense. It was not fair that Martha was the only one in the kitchen getting things ready. And yet here, Christ reprimands her, in a sense, in a very gentle way. In chapter 10, verse 41, Martha, Martha, you are careful and troubled about many things. Only one thing is needful, and Mary has chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. And you know, you, you don't know quite all the nuances there of, of the Lord's response. It could have meant that 
Mary, you're troubled about a 12-course meal here, many things. And only one food item was needed so that you too could have come in and sat at my feet and done that one good thing that was really ultimately important. I think the deeper, truer, purer meaning is only one thing is needed, this meat. I have meat to eat that you know not of, and I have meat to give that the soul hungers for. And Mary has chosen that one good thing. There are things that make sense that we get in a, a twit about. There are things that make sense that upset us. But the example of Christ and the commandments of Christ, his example was he never lost his focus. The only thing that held him was the will of God. And if he didn't eat, he didn't eat. If he needed to pray first, after he'd been healing all night long, healing people all night long, he would pray. He'd eat when it was time to eat. But then he also told his disciples, don't be troubled over many things. There's only one thing that stands in your way here. With Mary, Martha, there were many things. Don't lose your focus, Brenda, on the soulish entrapments and snares. The things of Caesar that seem so critical and so important, ultimately, in the scheme of things, become irrelevant. What's relevant is finding every soul that hungers for something more and giving it a name to hunger for. Showing them the love they need. Showing them the acceptance they need. Showing them the forgiveness that they need. Giving them the grace they need. Reaching the souls that are lost. That's why I came. That's why I lived. That's why I died. That is my meat and my meat I give to you. If you and I are to be part of the revolution, we have to hone our focus in, bring it more and more into the spirit, more and more into pleasing the Father, more and more into looking for where Jesus is out there in the world and meeting him there, more and more letting the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory. In peace. Let's pray. It is his way. And he asks you and me to be Martha. And consider the many things that somehow hinder the spirit in us calling us forth. What are those things? that ultimately are irrelevant, that we find so important.
What are those natural, soulish responses that you and I tend to give? That makes sense. But they're irrelevant. That may even hinder the saving spirit life of Christ. What does he want you to do about those? Take some time right now to be before him in this. Father God, I ask that your spirit would stir deep within us all and speak to us of your will. Of your ways. And stir up a flame in us that so yearns to walk in your spirit and in your ways that we will let go of those irrelevant things in our lives that really, in the scheme of things, they really don't matter. Help us to have a hunger and a thirst for what does matter. Help us, Father, to train our focus and keep it honed on you and remind us quickly through your spirit's jerking of our reins when we have lost our focus and are out there in our soul, romping and playing in the fields of our soul and calling it your will. Remind us when we're doing that and bring us back home quickly. I pray this in the name of Christ, our Lord and our Savior, and I pray it for the sake of his spirit kingdom within us. Amen.